live. All right. Uh, welcome to the welcome to Legal Tech Week for the first show of the new year. And uh, it, I know it's it's been a quiet week so far, so I don't know if we're going to have much to talk about, but we'll see if we can come up with come up with something to, to hit on. Uh, and uh, I am uh, I'm Bob Ambrogi. I do the blog Law Sites and the podcast Law Next. And uh, our usual uh, usual suspects are arrayed here before you today. Uh, you want to introduce yourselves? Uh, Molly, you want to start? Sure. Molly McDonough. I'm a media strategist uh, and a freelancer based in the Chicago area, former editor and publisher of the ABA Journal. And uh, Victor? Hi, my name is Victor Lee. I am assistant managing editor with the ABA Journal. I, I used to work for Molly. Um, uh, happy 20. 2021, everyone. Obviously, it's been a very slow year, just like we all thought it would. And I'm sure <laughs> nothing else is going to happen over the course of a couple of weeks to to uh, to change that. So, all right, uh, Joe. Hey everybody, uh, Joe Patrice from Above the Law here. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, we're we're joking about it being a slow week, but I I actually did struggle to think of like legal tech things that happened because literally <laughs> everything seems like a, a decade ago, and I mean from like Monday. Right, I know it. Yeah, Victoria, how about you? Hey everyone, my name is Victoria. I'm a reporter at Legal Tech News, which is a publication owned by ALM. Sometimes you also see my uh, byline at law.com, American Lawyer, and a few of our other publications, where you'll usually find me writing about cybersecurity and how lawyers are and usually not using technology. All right, Zach. Hey there, everybody. I'm Zach Warren. I'm editor-in-chief of Legal Tech News, work with Victoria. Uh, also find me at law.com and other ALM publications. Um, I'm loath to say Happy New Year because it still feels like 2020 this week. So I'll say like <laughs> Happy December 38th, 2020 to everybody. And, and uh, Caroline is our person from uh, somewhere where maybe the world isn't quite so crazy right now. I don't know. Oh, I don't know. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm in a hazmat suit hiding from the mutant <laughs> coronavirus that we caused. Well, We're all doing that. <laughs> uh, yeah, Caroline Hill, Editor-in-Chief of Legal IT Insider. Um, we've had a few bits of legal tech news this week in terms of everyone chose this week to acquire, to announce that they were acquiring somebody else, which took me a little bit by surprise on the first week back. Um, but my website's a bit broken at the moment, so you wouldn't be able to see it, but I'm happy to talk about it today. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, there has been some legal tech news this week, actually. Uh, it's been I, it, it, a little bit less than I thought. Um, and, and actually, I, some people on this call may even know, I think one, at least one uh, company pulled off an announcement it was going to make this week, given uh, everything that was going on. And they thought, uh, maybe this is not the right time to be making major news announcements. But, um, it, you know, it's been such a weird week. I don't even know where to start. But I, I wondered if anybody just has any sort of general thoughts that they want to share in terms of the, the week the week that we just had uh, observations thoughts uh, craziness uh, legal tech or not pardon me while i throw up yeah okay. <laughs> Good. i mean i i think i speak for everybody and like can you really believe ohio state took out clemson like that i mean geez <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah no um yeah so so wednesday was interesting um hopefully uh <laughs> I, um, hopefully everybody, uh, wasn't, who was listening to us and everything wasn't in DC and, uh, and, you know, was fine. Uh, 
but it has been uh, it's been a crazy week, uh, and I think we're I'm personally very excited to talk about uh, whatever we're going to talk about here because uh, it's been rough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I tried, I tried to think, but I, sorry. Oh, yeah, it just felt for me a little bit weird writing about legal tech and you see what's going on in D.C. And like right. there's bigger things going on in the world, but of course there's like things going on in legal tech. So it kind of felt like, uh, kind of felt weird writing about it when you see like the main down in D.C. Yeah. And actually, but we will have topics it, um, to discuss. On, on this, fair, on there, this, there are, sorry. sorry, you go, Victor. Okay. To be fair, there are some legal tech elements of what happened in D.C. Right. I mean, there are yeah. some things that, you know uh, that that as, as as I'm sure we'll see you know in the coming months you know there will be aspects of legal tech that we can focus on with regards to what was going on but yeah I I, I thought back to like what what was the big story at the beginning of the week it was oh Trump calling the Georgia Secretary of State and that just seems so long ago now wait a minute, I thought it was fast case acquired case maker but okay well, yeah. <laughs> so on this on this on the you turn on the radio on, the, on this side of the pond and that's I've learned more about the 25th amendment than I've ever known and <laughs> article, right. well, article four and like you know it's, <laughs> I feel like fully fully sort of uh, informed because that's all as well this anyone's talking about here as well pretty much yeah I think most all of us have learned more about the 25th amendment <laughs> than we ever thought uh, about before <laughs> I, I feel like I've learned a lot of things um, from about what lawyers think the first amendment says uh which is is fascinating too it's 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 really fun for me to watch real debates on you know first amendment and uh between constitutional law professors and then then see the armchair twitter lawyers um spouting off about what's a what's a first amendment violation it's it's amazing or, to me or in some cases supreme court clerks you know spouting yes. off about it right or former ones too. Yeah. yeah. That was a joke. I mean, that's that. actually one of the, go ahead to that. I was just going to say that was a joke that I saw on Twitter this week is every high schooler this year is going to nail their AP government exam <laughs> because everybody knows all of the amendments at this point, at least through the past four years. Yeah. But, but it, that actually, I mean, the point uh, that we, well, we've all raised, both Molly and Victor raised uh, in particular, is I think one of the interesting, perhaps legal tech uh, consequences uh, or, or, or issues here. Uh, whether it's legal tech, I don't know. I think I think Molly suggested we at some point talk about what is legal tech. I don't know what that even means anymore. Sometimes, but but um, there has been you know so much chatter this week about what should social media companies do about um, you know quelling widespread misinformation. Uh, what should um, uh, uh, what you know what what whether the tech industry needs to be uh, coming together in some way to kind of talk about this. Now, that's not a first, you know, what you publish on Twitter, you don't have a first amendment right to publish on Twitter, uh, but it's a speech, right? It's a, it's, it is a, a, a free speech issue. And uh, Victor, you had actually pointed to a, a particular, I think, article uh, this week that kind of got into some of that, but, uh, and, and talked about the fact that, you know, social media really has a role here and to play in, in what happened this week. And, and that raises questions about what the response should be going forward. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was really interesting just, uh, and I mean, we talked a little bit about this before we came on the air, just, just the fact that like, you know, you know, people like, I, I, one, one thing that, I don't know if anything really made me laugh during the course of, of, of what happened <laughs> Wednesday, but if anything did, it was like when the FBI sent out their message, like, hey, anyone with tips, you know, please let us know. I was like, well, 
were you not watching social media? People were broadcasting this stuff live. They were taking pictures of themselves in like Pelosi's office, like going through her mail, putting putting their feet on her desk and like doing all these other, like there was a guy who carried out the speaker's podium and like got identified within like within like 10 minutes or 20 minutes. Like it's just, to me, it was interesting just watching that because then you had, you know, Twitter deciding to suspend Trump for, um, I guess what really ended up being like, what, like a day? Um, Facebook deplatforming him for you know, for two weeks, and you know it's interesting just just to see that just and also in regards to, like the whole the larger debate over over section two over uh, section two thirty and whatnot, just you know how much you know how much freedom should these companies have, you know how, how, what kind of restrictions should they have, and you know you know like one thing that that I, you know just in, in looking through and reading about you know what what happened, looking at some of these other um, platforms out there like Parler and Gab and whatnot, you know, they're, you know, they're kind of marketing themselves as like, you know, unrestricted alternatives to these, to these, you know, really restrictive, like Facebook, Twitter, like uh, mainstream sites. And, and it'll be interesting to kind of see, see going forward, like, okay, well, does that, does that, you know, what, what, what effect does it have going forward on, on sort of like, you know, user numbers also, you know, the roles that like these platforms will play any kind of restrictions that would have to would have to come in and 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 just the role that they played in just even facilitating this i mean you know you saw like all these messages between people just openly calling for these kind of things and like you know sometimes you have to kind of parse out what's serious and what's not serious but if you're from a law enforcement standpoint well you got to investigate every single one of them right i mean so just having to come through all that data and having to decide you know what you know what leads to fall and whatnot i mean i certainly don't envy them but this is what this is what they're, they're supposed to do i guess yeah I think there needs, there needs to be so much more clarity, doesn't there? Like, so I was having a bit of a debate with m- most of my friends have gone completely mad and seem to have become conspiracy theorists. And, you know, whereas I'm delighted when Trump um, is blocked by social media personally, <laughs> we've had a lot of debates around the role of the, the power of social media in determining what is fact and what is not fact. Um, and I think there's, there's valid concerns there, isn't there? You know, I'm kind of, I, we've, we've talked a lot here about responsibility um, and they obviously is responsibility, but it also goes with that, you know, kind of how, who, who becomes the judge, right? So we're, we're now turning them into judges of what is fact and not. And, and um, as we know, if the last few weeks have taught us anything is that people don't agree on what's fact a lot of the time. <laughs> it's not that clear. Right. And this has been the irony of this whole war that they want to have on Section 230, because Section 230, of course, protects the the platform from the dumb things people say on the platform. And they and they're complaining about, well, they're moderating me. That means that they are really taking it. So we got to get rid of Section 230. You got rid of Section 230. All Twitter would do would more massively go after go after you and moderate you because now they'd be on the hook for the stupid things you say. Right. Like it's the dumbest fight for these people to pick. Right. Well, yeah. again, I mean, I kind of wonder how much of it is just them being told that, okay, well, Section 230 is bad. Section 230 is bad. Because, and that's that's the only ironic thing that I found about this whole thing. You know, Trump decided to pick a fight with Twitter and Facebook because he didn't like the fact that, you know, he couldn't just say whatever he wanted to. But, like, chances are he probably wouldn't be president without those platforms. So, you know, why are you picking this fight? Like, especially now, I mean, is it because you know now that you're about to transition to the, to the private sector, you know that you can't just say whatever you want and, you know, uh, <laughs> and would there be no consequences at all? So yeah, it, it, I almost wonder how much of it is just, you know, people being told over and over again, well, section 230 is bad, section 230 is bad because it's gonna infringe on my freedoms and it's gonna, 
you know, do this and do that and do that. And it's like, yeah, Section 230 is terrible. Let's get rid of it. Let's do this. So. I, one of the things that I've, I've really started to think about, especially after the the um, the pauses that Twitter and Facebook uh, put on the president is, you know, what's more damaging to somebody or a business? Is it a political sanction uh, or is it um, not being able to communicate on these wildly popular uh, forums? So I, I've, I'm just, I think that's a really, interesting place to be for for some of these folks uh you know it's one thing if you get arrested and thrown in jail it's another thing if you know you get a slap on the wrist and maybe some political blowback that actually would make you more popular on the social space so you know being banned indefinitely from facebook could be a bigger deal that's yeah. what i find so interesting and victor brought up parlor in particular and i've been watching parlor for a little bit so many of the people who are at the capitol that's where they posted it is to parlor not necessarily to facebook or twitter and there's been so many calls okay well trump if you get banned why don't you why don't so many other republican politicians just move to that platform well that's not where the people are the main thing for them isn't necessarily speaking to the base it's speaking to the wider audience and either drawing more people into the base or uh, explaining what the base's goals are and you can only do that in a mass communication platform like a twitter like a facebook and there's kind of that back and forth of oh if you're twitter or facebook then how do you respond to that when that is the explicit goal it's really interesting yeah Steve, you had a post this week that is sort of tangentially related to what we're talking about here, because you were talking about the issue of online courts and how that throws open access to court proceedings in a way that we've never really seen before. Uh, and and uh, you, you raised some questions about that, that I'm not sure. I'm not sure how I feel about the questions you raised. Well, but, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and it was interesting. I, I showed the piece to somebody. And first of all, let me say, I, I actually drafted that you know, Tuesday and Wednesday morning and, uh, you know, posted it like at noon and didn't really think a whole lot about it after that. And then, you know, all hell broke loose that afternoon. So, you know, I, I wasn't being, uh, I wasn't predicting anything. It was just happenstance. But yeah, I uh, had read an article by uh, Allison Frankel and she was, she was talking about, you know, the tr technology trends. And one of the things she was saying is, there's there's more and more access to courts and court proceedings like the the election proceedings that occurred in Pennsylvania and, and Georgia that you know attracted thousands of people listening in um, and uh, you know more and more courts are now grappling with what do we do because there is in this country the notion of public access to courts and and that's a valid point I mean that's that's how we keep the judiciary and the system honest is by allowing the public access to see what's going on. When we were all, you know, when you had to drive to the courthouse, park your car, sit in the courtroom all day, and hopefully, you know, there'd be 20 minutes of testimony. That was one thing. Now, when anybody can see anything anywhere, anytime, uh, if they can do that, I'm not saying they can, but if they could, that, that poses a lot of questions. And I was thinking about it this afternoon, you know, many of you on the call probably remember the OJ Simpson trial uh, back in the nineties, which was publicly broadcast uh, every day. Uh, it was really fascinating to, to watch, but I was thinking to myself, if that occurred today, 
with social media and all the commentary, you know, what would it look like? And I, I'm, I'm not sure it would be pretty. Uh, I think it would be pretty ugly. And, and the, the dangers, I think, run to the, to the judges, uh, to the witnesses, to the lawyers, to the courtroom personnel, uh, to the jurors that could be involved and face all sorts of intimidation. And I, I think uh, after I wrote it, somebody said, well, you, you pointed out a lot of problems. What's the solution? Like you, Bob, I don't have the solution other than I think as a profession, the, the, the legal profession and the judiciary needs to begin grappling with this and begin needs to think about, okay, where do we draw the line between public access and uh, uh, protection of the integrity of the system and the credibility of the system. The judicial conference, you know, is going to be, begin allowing live streaming, but not for jury trials and not for proceedings that involve witnesses, which, you know, may be an appropriate line to draw. I don't know. Uh, but the online world isn't going away. Online court proceedings aren't going away. And to, to, to think, well, when we all get back to normal, we won't have to worry about this. I don't think that's correct. I think it is something that we have to worry about. You know, what would happen if when some of the, the, the people involved in, the, in the, the riots in Washington were to go to trial and the, the court were to say, we're gonna live stream the whole trial. Good God. <laughs> we, well, we can you know, see the I mean, same so, scene play out that, again. <laughs> it's right. And it brings up this, the issues that I think you touched on a little bit in your post. I mean, I think this goes really to the heart of privacy and security of the courts and the court process. You know, and, and I know they're not talking about doing live streaming, ga streaming gang trials, but, you know, we, we were already having issues with witness intimidation and jury intimidation, which is one reason that cell phones have been banned uh, from some of these cases in courthouses. So it's, it's, this is going to be an issue that's, that's going to have to be dealt with. But, you know, it is being dealt with. I mean, I, I you know, my day job, I, I represent newspapers. I deal with a lot of these issues all the time of trying to keep courts open for reporters and open for journalists and open for the public. Uh, and, I mean, to the extent to many of the courts that are already live streaming trials in one way, you know, one way or another uh, have um, procedures in place to, you know, basically the judge is controlling the camera. Uh, they have, they can turn the camera on and off. They can, they can decide what parts of it should be broadcast or what parts should not be broadcast. Uh, there are a lot of constraints uh, in place already or protections rather in place already. Um, you know, it is, it's an interesting question because, you know, we're all for transparency until it gets too transparent and then we start to worry about it. Uh, and where do you draw the line on that? Um, I, 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 you know, I, I remember, I'm, I'm old enough to remember, you know, when, when court TV first launched, there was another one that launched at the same time, uh, I forget Arthur Miller and some other people had tried to launch one around that time, you know, just kind of stream showing, courts live all day long and and what they found out very quickly was that people were bored as heck watching <laughs> watching these things uh and and preferred not to do it but we're still going to get you know whether they they street live stream or not many many courts now have cameras in the courtroom and we still have you know the evening news clips of of defendants being arraigned and and uh people testifying and all of that 
Um, and, uh, you know, if there is a, a threat to, if there's a potential threat to somebody's safety or security as a result of that, I think that's something uh, the judges can deal with and, and take appropriate steps without necessarily having to come up with a hard and fast policy around it. Um, yeah, I, 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 I don't know, Bob. I'm, I mean, I, to some extent, it, 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 and maybe it's because in my years as a litigator, I saw lots of things happen in the courtroom that I thought were unfair, you know, because they hurt my client mainly, but... <laughs> But um, like that time, know, your objection got overruled. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can't imagine my objection. But you know, leaving it, leaving it to individual judges, uh, sort of on a carte blanche. Okay, you, you, you can decide. You know, Judge Ambrosia, what happens in your courtroom, and um, you know, most judges are are honest. They're diligent. They do their jobs. But particularly in those systems where judges are elected, you know, what what could that mean? What could that generate? And I think it's, um, you know, it's time to. Uh, I think where I ended up in the in the piece, as I said before, is it's it's something that the judiciary needs to grapple with. You know, what 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 rules should apply to social media posting with respect to ongoing trials and proceedings you know what are we going to allow yeah. to happen in a courtroom be seen in a courtroom you guys i remember and i think if some courts still there's no photography so you'd have these artists sort of drawing you know these these nice pictures and to some extent it's kind of interesting because you could see you know how their interpretation of what the witness was was looking at but i just think that you know somewhere we need to be thinking about some guidelines sort of sort of across the board for yeah. certain I mean, they have been courts. a lot of states have uh, have state guidelines on uh, cameras in the courts that that talk right. about what kinds of proceedings can be broadcast and uh, you know what what powers a judge has to turn the camera on or off I, I know Massachusetts has 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 a you know a, a pretty extensive rule on that uh, and I know that other states can't cite you the other states as well but I, I know that other states do uh, so uh, to some extent that's being dealt with, but I, I you know, I under, you're, you're right. It, it needs to be, there need to be clear guidelines around it, but I, I would hate to see those guidelines uh, be such that they uh, do inhibit the public access. I mean, I think, I think public access is really right. the, the fundamental it's core a, of our judicial system. It's a, it, and it's important. I mean, it's, I, I don't, didn't mean and don't mean to belittle the importance of that right, if you will, or that principle because I mean that's that keeps the system honest in a lot of ways. Uh, yeah. You know, it, it was just much. It was just much easier when you had to actually go and sit in the courtroom, right? Right. Yep. But, but let's be honest. Like no matter what, no matter what, no matter how much transparency there is, it, it's still not going to be enough for some people. You know, because you know you could watch a trial and just see 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 people do a sidebar. But oh, what are they talking about? You know, are they making a secret deal? Are they? doing this and, and then the judge goes oh well and, and then if you if something gets gets um you know gets uh, excluded well why did they exclude that you know why, why can't we see that and and whatnot so you know i, I mean i i almost wonder if like you know sometimes like the laws you know you know the rules of the court and, and whatnot are just so arcane and so like not you know they, they might not be so obvious to, to to people that they might not understand really what's going on and it might just fuel a lot of like you know preconceptions that they might have about 
you know, justice, justice not being fair or, you know, things being, you know, rigged and, 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 and whatnot and, and certain things being in the tank for other people. So, you know, I, I almost kind of feel like, well, you're not going to please everybody no matter what you do. And it's, you know, the, particularly in an elected, where you have an elected judiciary, so you, it, it's easy to imagine a judge limiting public access and then just being excoriated in social media and elsewhere for doing that, that would put pressure on him fearing for his job at the next election that would then, you know, make him maybe more willing to allow greater access or lesser access, depending on you know, probably on, on the side of greater access more than lesser. And it's, uh, again, it's just a, a, a question. It, it's something that I worry about, particularly now that we saw the results of this week, because, you know, the, the integrity and credibility of our judiciary is you know, sort of the, the last bastion of, of, of that kind of respect and credibility to, to the extent it still exists. And we, we have to be careful with that, I think. Yep. Yeah, no, you're right. Well, there was uh, was some other legal tech news this week that maybe we should uh, talk about, or there was not other legal tech news. There was some legal tech news this week that maybe we should talk about. Um, and uh, I, I'd probably kick it off at talking about the uh, fast case case maker uh, merger, uh, just because. Man, when when uh, I heard about that, I got to say my jaw dropped. Uh, I I never saw that coming, um, and uh, I think I think it really uh, could be uh, have a significant impact on you know the legal research market in this country. I mean, you know, according to the fast case case maker people, they now have you know their combined subscriber base is something north of a million lawyers. Uh, in, you know, the ABA puts the total number of lawyers at 1.3 million. Uh, that always seems a little conservative to me, but whatever, even it's 1.4, they, they've got a, a huge subscriber base. Now that doesn't mean all those people are actually using the product, but, but they have access to it through their, their bar association memberships. Um, and, um, you know, I, th I think there, there is a lot of good that can come out of that. Um, there's potentially you know, sort of a, a monopolistic bad that could come out of it too, I think, uh, uh, in terms of uh, does this in any way inhibit some of the, the startups, the legal research startups that are out there, uh, um, you know, that are coming along. I, I know I put that, that question to Ed Walters and he was, uh, he said, you know, not at all because we, you know, we've made a, a point of supporting a, a lot of these startups. A lot of them get there cases and whatnot through us and, and we support them in any number of ways, but uh, um, all the more, you know, that's all the more control that they have over the market in a sense. So I think it's a good, I think it's a good thing overall, but uh, you know, I think it's something that uh, it'll be interesting to see what the consequences are as we go forward. Yeah, I think it's particularly interesting too, coming off the heels of everything that happened with Ross and Thomson Reuters. And at the time we were asking the question, so where is that middle for legal research? Can yeah. you be something other than a startup or just one of the largest companies in general? How do you get from one end to the other? Um, and Fastcase uh, has grown a lot, but I think 
especially pre-deal, a lot of people were saying it didn't have the scale of Thomson Reuters, Lexus, Bloomberg. So from that standpoint, and especially seeing what happens to that middle, yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense for Fastcase to try and get as much scale as humanly possible and get that million dollars, or not million dollars, million subscribers that they claim. Um, how exactly that all shakes out in the wash and uh, what or whether that puts them at the same level or by pure subscribers, maybe even above Westlaw, Lexus, et cetera, we'll see. Um, but from that standpoint, I think it makes a lot of sense from a business standpoint. Yeah. Um, I guess we lost Caroline, right? She was, she disappeared for a while and now she seems to be gone altogether, but. Uh... Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, I think they just, she just uh, legal panel X did. How, how do you how do you do that <laughs> yeah uh anyone else have thoughts on the on that well i think i guess i guess for me like i mean one thing that i was kind of curious about and i'd ask my reporter to look at because uh we 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 we, we uh, wrote it up after after it happened uh one thing i asked my reporter was oh yeah just try to find out okay because looking at looking at the specific looking at this just you know your piece bob and then just the, the, the press release it sounded more like an acquisition, not quite like a merger. Um, you know, what, like, because what, Ed's still in charge. Um, you know, uh, the, 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 the case maker people are going to join the fast case board. That usually smells like an acquisition, not so much a merger of equals. But, you know, uh, so I asked my reporter to, to, to ask about that. And, you know, he was like, oh, well, they were kind of like, oh, it's a merger. You know, it's not an acquisition, blah, blah, blah. I was like, well, yeah, of course they're going to say that. But mm -hmm. um, so, so yeah, it, 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 it really smelled to me more like a, uh, yeah, like just more of a more of an outright purchase, but you know, I haven't seen the details of uh, of it whatnot. But yeah, I, I do I do think it's it, it it definitely shows like you know, you know, like a statement of intent, I guess, from Fastcase that they did you know like just looking at all the acquisitions that they had over the last couple of years. I mean, they're really growing at a at a at a, at a pretty fast clip, and um, yeah, fast case, fast clip. <laughs> but yeah. Um, but yeah, so it, it'll it'll be interesting to, to to see what this does and does this kind of cause. Because I remember when we had Ed on a couple months ago, I guess, you know, I, th I, th I think I think we had asked, oh, like, so what's next for you? And he was a little bit cagey and kind of like, you know, not, not really sure, blah, blah, blah. So but but I do wonder if this kind of, um, you know, kind of puts the brakes on things a little bit just or, or just kind of slows things down for them. Just, you know, because now they have a big they have a lot of integration they got to do. They have a lot of things they have to work out and whatnot. So with this, yeah, with this kind of slow things down for them or is it just just. It's just step one of like the of the of like the four step four step plan to like you know for total domination. Who knows? Yeah, I don't well, think I, there's any place to slow down in any of this because you because I they have to stay ahead of the technology that's going to allow competitors to keep coming into the market. Uh, so, yeah, I will I will uh, uh, give myself a shameless plug here, which is that I I have a episode of my Law Next podcast coming out Monday where I've got. Uh, I talked to Ed Walters and, and Phil Rosenthal, the two uh, co-founders of Fastcase, and uh, Satish Sheth, who's the uh, CEO and president of CaseMaker, and they all got on the on the call together and mm -hmm. talked about what this all means. Um, you know, I, I think Victor, you're right. It, it, it smells a little more like uh, an acquisition than a than a merger, uh, and, I, and I, in a way, that's kind of the way I think it's going to sort of. Uh, play out, um, but you know, I, I, it, either whatever you call it, it, it the the impact is is kind of the same. I mean, you, you get the, the the resources and the technology and the staff of both companies come together into a combined company, and uh, 
uh, and with everything each of them independently brought to that uh, that deal and uh, together you've got a pretty substantial uh, company with a lot of different facets to it of course you never know but from from fast case and maybe case makers standpoint too you know better to have this kind of combination than watch and have one of them gobbled up by Alexis Nexus or Thomson Reuters, uh, because that would make the whoever's left left in the marketplace competition challenge that much greater. It's it's already pretty great given the size of of those two, well three, I guess when you count Bloomberg. So uh, I think it's a good thing, and probably you know maybe is a saving saving a competitor and two competitors into one, saving a competitor in a field that might not otherwise had been saved at the end of the day. Yeah, and, I, and supposedly this, and I, not supposedly, I think they said this, that this came out of the litigation they were uh, involved mm -hmm. in over the Georgia uh, uh, administrative uh, code. Uh, and, and, you know, there's sort of a point at that litigation where they uh, kind of said, why are we fighting against each other when, uh, you know, we could do so much better if we just kind of joined forces and, uh, you know, tilted our, our uh, tilted at some other giants uh, in this in this battle. I'm mixing some metaphors there, I think. But, uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, what I mean, there were a couple of other, uh, um, you know, acquisitions this week. I don't know if they were uh, uh, sort of potentially if the, if the long term impact of, of, of them is necessarily as, as significant, but there was a uh, Latera uh, making yet another uh, acquisition. It's it's been on kind of a roll uh, lately, uh, and uh, this time uh, getting Foundation Software Group, which kind of um, moves it into a whole other area of of, of product than it, than it had before, in a sense, uh, into kind of uh, business intelligence uh, and. Uh, uh, firm intelligence uh, and then Relativity's acquisition of Vercu, um, which uh, my biggest problem was I kept misspelling Vercu in my blog post <laughs> for some reason. I couldn't get it right. I don't know what my problem was, but uh, I don't I'm know. Anybody, do you have any thoughts on any of those? Or I'm just glad to hear somebody else misspells things in their blog post besides me. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, believe me. Well, I've got a whole army of editors like, out there who let me know as soon as I do. Well, it's hard with tech companies. Very often you have like, you know, it's like you have like lowercase companies or like, you know, what, like, where, where, like where it's like a combination of a word, but then like, you know, like maybe some, you know, like, like it'll be like weird capitalization rules. So yeah, I, I've, I, I've done it. I'm sure, I'm sure we've all done it at some point. Yeah. And there was a deal that actually fell through that was announced. Um, Red Gray, the e-discovery boutique, um, it's, um, I think it's supposed to be a merger with uh, the law firm Nelson Mullins um, that fell through. And they said because of uh, client issues, I think um, they had some client issues there and they couldn't get it resolved. And one of my colleagues at the American Lawyer, um, they just posted an article, I believe today about like those types of deals falling through so late in the game is kind of rare. But usually, like if a deal is going to break down, it is like because there's client conflict. So I thought that was kind of interesting, like a uh, like a large law firm trying to like um, um, uh, bolster up his e-discovery abilities in that deal. Yeah. I, 
I was surprised by that. Why I, I I didn't really understand kind of how this was going to be leveraged and whether why the firm didn't splinter off a separate um, entity to have this this part of the business uh, because that seems safer to do for co client conflict reasons. I do think that the um, Redgrave was going to be uh, um, acquired by a subsidiary. But it was just like some like high profile client matters and you just said they couldn't resolve it. And they said, we're not going to give up those clients. So we'll just um, kibosh the deal. Yeah, it, they would have been part of the Encompass Nelson Mullins subsidiary, um, which is particularly e-discovery and information governance focused. But now they are not. Yeah. Um, well, also on the, uh, I guess also on the, uh, question of, uh, this actually relates maybe back to our discussion with Steve about uh, court uh, information going out to the public. Joe, you were, you, you were going to talk, uh, you brought up this issue of uh, another wonderful hacking uh, this week, or what we learned yeah. about Yeah, so um, it, it's really a testament to uh, how this week was, that we learned this on Wednesday, and I didn't really get around to digging into it till Friday because gestures wildly. Because, because. Um, yeah, so in uh, in late in early December, actually, we learned that there was a hack of government computers as well as several other companies. But this Solar Winds hack, which was basically, it, it is not real. I guess we haven't proven it, but intelligent the intelligence community has blamed Russia uh, and that Russia launched a cyber attack against the U.S., which it did by kind of Trojan horsing it through a vendor. So they took over basically the vendor's software, and then the vendor would sell it to the government and all these companies, and then it would exist there for a while. Eventually, they would force in an update that would introduce some malware, and then they had kind of backdoor, the Russians had backdoor access to all these things. Uh, there were a lot of, obviously, more important things that they got access to, but we learned on Wednesday that, and this has been going on for a few weeks now, we learned on Wednesday that one of the uh, sources that they had access to was the federal court system. So, there's some Russian agent somewhere pouring over the minutia of some declaration that somebody wrote about a noise complaint and I don't know, whatever. The point is, um, there's a lot of dumb stuff in our federal system. However, there are, you know, trade secret cases and stuff like that. And these highly secure documents that are things that espionage might want to get a hand, their hands on. Uh, it appears as though they've been able to get their hands on it and dating back to estimates suggest maybe even as early as March. So right now, the court system is saying that uh, if you have something highly secretive that you can't uh, hand out, you uh, need to go back to paper. So we're back to paper. That, that'd be exciting for a lot of the older lawyers out there. Um, and yeah, everybody who prints out their emails and writes on them and sends them back via inner office mail, this is your moment. Uh, <laughs> but don't worry, everybody. It still costs $2 billion to have Pacer be free. So... When when they when they say paper though, it, so even paper now is digitized. At oh, yeah, some I point. mean, so I, I'm. I, what does that mean? Are we, you know, are we going? Are are all the courts going to have to get back to f secure fax machines and Well, so my theory is, uh, my understanding of it is, uh, which the, obviously this is very new. Uh, this announcement was just first made that this was going on on Wednesday. So I don't, I don't really know what, what they're going to choose, but it seems as though these, the problem is in with a piece of 
kind of like IT monitoring software that's on these systems. So if you don't put this through the electronic docketing system, one would think it would be safe from this. So if you just wrote this document in Word and mailed it to people, that would not trigger this problem. It's that they've infiltrated basically the server. Uh, so you can keep it off of that. And yes, you're using digital, you're using software to create it and so on, but you you aren't going through the panel, the, the pathway that uh, this would be a problem of. Uh, SolarWinds claims that they've got a patch that fixes it. So this may be a short-lived uh, change, but I'm sure they're gonna, they're gonna hold this for a while just till they're sure. Yeah, I, the, the, some of the reports that I heard, and there was an ex, a really good uh, podcast by um, Leo Laporte. I think it's, it's one of his podcasts on on the solar wind um, hack. And and one of the problems is <clears throat> not only patching it, but but finding out all the holes that that have been created. Some of which are are very difficult to spot and, and could be years before they all come to light, uh, given the nature of what solar wind was providing. Uh, and it, you know, it, it goes to show that, you know, the, the whole supply chain kind of end of security is you know, a, a problematic in a lot of ways because you can, you can certainly control your own house, but you can't control necessarily you know who's who's bringing the stuff to your house uh you, you can ask all the questions you want but uh, nevertheless you, you, the security is a is a significant problem in a supply chain environment that we all live in yeah they, the easier way would have just been to uh, give all these documents to some, one of these big firms and ask them to uh uh, uh go ahead and uh block out the, uh, see if they knew how to redact, uh, properly redact these documents and uh, get the secrets just as easily. We, we've seen so many cases of these, you know, federal court PACER documents uh, revealing secret information just because they weren't properly redacted. But uh, this is obviously, uh, obviously has potential ramifications well beyond that. I don't know, Joe, Joe could be right. There's probably some poor Russian sitting down reading all this stuff. <laughs> What do these people do? <laughs> Why do they yeah. do this? Yeah. This, is, this is insane. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, they're still trying to figure out how they screwed up the election, so they got to get work on that first, and then go back. And... Well, they can they can read they can read the Kraken Lady's uh, latest. Uh, <laughs> um. So what else do we have here? We got uh, Victoria. Did you have? Did you, you did have some, oh, you talked about it, the Nelson Mullins. Yes, the right. Nelson Mullins. Um, Molly, yeah, Molly, and also with oh, yeah, Joe, oh, to Joe's point, I also thought it was interesting. They said, you know, confidential filing, either paper-based or through a thumb drive. And I was like, I haven't seen the word thumb drive since high school, but I was like, <laughs> you can always go to Staples and, you know, get your thumb drive. I got a drawer of them if you want them. Uh, Molly, did you want to, what did you have this week? I, I had a couple things. Uh, one was a conversation Steve and I were involved in earlier today, which was just a, um, a, a somebody threw out a question, what is legal tech? Uh, and it, it's a really interesting, I posted your article on um, Zach on new law, uh, because I thought that had a good formula for defining new law that could be used for defining legal tech as well. Uh, and you went a little bit back to, to talk about 
technology and, and applied to legal in that piece. Uh, but it was interesting because the definition, the person that was um, um, on the lunch was using, on Ari Kaplan's virtual lunch was using is that it's anything, any technology that touches legal, which is anything. So Zoom is legal tech, Microsoft is legal tech, uh, you know, anything is legal tech. And, it, you know, for me, it's contextual uh, and, you know, what it means for the narrow audience. And it definitely makes a difference in what it means in terms of raising money for a startup. Uh, whether you're, you know, big tech or niche legal oriented, and or, and or whether you're you you're big enough to have a vertical that's just devoted to tech, so I, I just thought it was kind of an interesting question, um, and and uh, came up a little bit uh, on a separate question that that Joe sent around a few days ago too on on what what's emerging tech. Right. Did you come up with an answer? I, th I thought what, uh, and she's not here to defend herself, but uh, I thought uh, Nikki sent around a, a useful uh, scholarly article that had kind of a, a guide for what emerging would be. In this instance, the question I sent around was very specific. It was uh, somebody had said, well, we're designated as an emerging tech by an organization. And it was like, I've never heard that organization put a rubber stamp of this is emerging and this isn't. So I was like, has anybody heard of that? And that's why we got into this more broadly philosophical question, ultimately. Yeah. To, to me, this question gets really interesting also, just because, just for, for myself and in, in what I write about, because, it, I mean, it used to be, and, and we've talked about this on this show before, I think, but it, I mean, there was a time, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to remember that time when tech and law practice were kind of off in separate worlds, and there was some overlap somewhere in the middle. Uh, but you could practice law without using tech at all, <laughs> uh, and and except for you know typewriters and telephones or something. Uh, but uh, you know we we are at a point when there is uh, essentially you know ninety five percent, if not a hundred percent, overlap between technology and law practice, and so it gets it makes it that much more complicated to talk about you know. For me, to sometimes to think about what should I be writing about on my blog? What what do I cover? What don't I cover? What are the right topics? And I, I mean, I tend to think about it more, uh, you know, more broadly. I, I I do try and focus on legal tech as opposed to Microsoft Office or something. But you know, sometimes Microsoft uh, has made uh, major attempts to do things in the legal industry, and and then that's something that we cover. Um, so you know, it it's it's just a really fascinating question. I don't think there is no right answer. It's a it's a it's a judgment call. But it, it is interesting, as most of you know, I teach a, or did teach a uh, two and a half day intensive sort of uh, training program for uh, lawyers to use trial presentation sort, sorts of technologies. And um, you know, there's as we start that there is some of the people that come into it have this sort of idea that it must be technology, legal, legal technology, when in fact, most of the tools that we use have nothing to do with legal, their notability and their video and PowerPoint. And there's all these tools that, that lawyers can use that have nothing to do with, are not necessarily for legal tech, but are fundamental to the way that they practice their craft, uh, at least should be fundamental the way they practice their craft. Yeah. It's, interesting if you think about it too, like even something that you would consider stereotypical, quote unquote, legal tech, like cybersecurity. All major law firms have cybersecurity vendors that they work with. 
but ask who's the biggest legal tech security vendor, you're not really going to get an answer because a lot of them are enterprise by nature because security is translatable across pretty much any professional service. So personally, I tend to go more broad. I would count that legal tech because I, it is for professional services that is highly used in the legal function. But if you went to some, a lot of these security companies, even that you'll see at like a legal week or ILTA, they probably wouldn't call themselves legal tech because they tend to like try and have their market be a little bit more expansive than that. Yeah. I mean, you could take, for example, trial pad, which, you know, and I've had this debate with, with the lawyers before, you know, a well, trial pad, that's just for trials. Well, no, it's for any sort of presentation. And in fact, it could be used by anybody that's going to give a presentation, an accountant or, you know, somebody in a corporate uh, sales department. It, it, it is that broad of a tool, yet we, most of us, if we're asked, is, is that a piece of legal technology? We say, oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I had a uh... Jules Miller on my other podcast, my Law Next podcast a couple of weeks ago. And she is, you know, a former legal tech founder herself, who is now a venture investor. Uh, and she's helped starting to get her firm uh, to do more investing in legal tech. Um, and it, it, yet, yet her position is that the tech that interests her is tech that is not that has the potential to go across verticals and across industries. She's looking for tech that maybe maybe it's emerging out of the legal world, but she's looking for tech that's going to have applicability in other industries and other verticals as well, because that's the tech that could potentially, you know, be a billion dollar company someday. And just just like with uh, all the all the tools that have come from, you know, the accessibility needs of, of various people that you know, created all these things we all use frequently, even today, yeah. have, have gone well beyond that market. Yeah. Well, so I think, you know, Mark Palmer's make, made the point in the comments about the, the fact that the, uh, the so-called duty of tech competence uh, in the model rules doesn't say legal tech, it's, it says tech. And uh, whether, I don't know whether Mark would agree with me on this, but I, I often make the point that the duty uh, does not just mean you need to understand how to use, you know, kind of the tech that comes up in your own office or in your own practice, but you have to understand your client's tech too. Uh, and a, a lot of the ethics opinions that have come down around this really focus on, uh, well, some, a lot of them come out of the e-discovery arena where uh, you know, they talk about the fact that a lawyer needs to be able to understand how their clients store data and transmit data and communicate electronically and what kinds of files they have uh, in the, within their businesses or, or homes or whatever. Uh, and none of that is necessarily legal tech. Maybe some of it is, but, uh, uh, you know, you really have to have a, a I mean, even something as simple as needing to have a, a, a fundamental understanding of, of social media uh, and in order to represent clients properly these days. So, um, you know, and of course, there's that, that, that famous quote that, that somebody came up with that it's approaching the point where it might be malpractice not to use data analytics. I, I don't, some, some really smart person came up with that. I can't remember who it was. Your, your brilliant quote, Steve. <laughs> no, it was yours, Bob. <laughs> uh, all right. Did we have, let's see, what else do we have? Anything else this week? 
I don't think there was. Was there anything else that anybody wanted to talk about this week? I mean, I didn't have anything specific. I just, I like predictions and we've run a bunch of predictions this week. So I thought it might be fun, especially as this is the first show of the new year to go around and see if anybody has any big 2021 predictions for legal tech at all. Well, don't leave us hanging, Zach. (laughs) um, Well, when I was thinking about it, um, particularly with a lot of the litigation and political litigation that I think we're probably going to see this year and that has already begun. Um, Last time that we saw a lot of this litigation, e-discovery actually became a story. Um, Like I remember leading up to the 2016 election, so many people are saying, how could they possibly look through Hillary's emails in a weekend? And yes, that is kind of what e-discovery does. Um, (laughs) I think you're going to see e-discovery be general circ news once again um, in some fashion this year, whether it's combing through emails or cell phones or WhatsApp or what have you. Um, A lot of people having questions about how exactly they get a key piece of data, how you analyze it, how it is uh, applicable to courts and how courts accept it. Um, I don't know where that will come from, but I am predicting that that will happen at some point this year. What, so, um, while, I, while I have you, I, I forget whether, we, I don't know who it was, but somebody at, at law.com posted an article this week on predicting or, or not predicting, but uh, talking about whether we will get back to having live conferences this year. I think that was on yeah. Law.com, wasn't it? That was Frank, yeah. Yeah, Frank, okay. What do you think? Uh, I think second half, um, I, at least that's just me personally. I know, I, I see Steve shaking his head already. Um, I, I don't think they're going to be huge blowouts, but I also think like say Ulta will try everything in their power to have some in-person component. Um, so whether there will be in-person conferences, I say yes. Whether there will be, they will be the conferences that we knew pre-2020, probably not that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I, I, I was shaking my head because I, I think we may see, you know, conferences where some, some small group of people, the leadership of the organization gather at one physical place and, you know, the rest is, is virtual, uh, yeah. you know, and, it, and it's, you know, it's complicated because not only is, is you have to consider the risk, but you also have to consider the, the economics, how, you know, what appetite will people have for it? Uh, unless, you know, we're, we're really safe. Uh, and there also there's, there's the component of all the people that have been reached that were never reached before. So there's a lot of, a lot of considerations. I don't, I agree with you, Zach. We may see some smaller pieces of it 2021, but I don't, I don't, I think it will be a long time before we see the huge uh, shows again and not just in the legal uh, arena, but elsewhere. And CES is coming up this week and it's, you know, it's all virtual and, um, you know, I can't, it's hard to imagine how an international conference could take place <laughs> anytime soon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's the uh, Legal Services Corporation's uh, confer- conference, uh, their, their technology conferences next week. Also, if you haven't signed up for that, it's a great conference. Anybody else want to make predictions? I think we're going to see more online trials and proceedings. Um, 
and I think we're going to get to it. And I had a, a, a friend out on the West Coast who, who has started a three-week online jury trial. And they got to it because the two sides sat down together with the judge and the judge was basically, look, you, you, we can have an online trial and resolve this matter this year, or we can have an in-person trial. And it may be, I got to tell you, I've got 35 cases in front of you, 40 cases in front of you, mm -hmm. who knows? And both sides said, we got to get this over with. We, we, you know, we can't have this hanging over our heads the next four years. So I think there's going to be more and more pressure to, to, to do that. And, uh, you know, the, the in-person trials that take place have fundamental problems with them. You know, you, you get this sort of idea that, oh, I can't read the jury's body language on a Zoom call. It's also pretty hard to read their body language when they're 50 yards away from you at the yeah. same time. Yeah. So I think yeah. people, lawyers and judges are starting to say, yeah, you know, if we can't go back and do it exactly like we could before, maybe online is better than in person in a lot of ways. So yeah. that's my thought about where we might be headed. I'll just throw out because of, because of the increase in online uh, uh, communications and uses by courts, I expect uh, more empowerment of and creation of roles for court navigators uh, on the tech front, if not um, on on uh, some of the practice front. Interesting. I think we'll still continue to see more lawyers and their law firm staffers, corporate legal departments, still working from home, you know, not going into the office at the same rate that they did like pre-2020 especially yeah. if I'm demanding it. Yep. Anything else, Joe, you want to venture any? Yeah, you know, I, I was actually kind of thinking the exact, exact same line as Victoria. I was thinking that uh, for anybody whose office leases are coming up this year, I think there's now a completely different worldview of what your next office is going to look like for exactly yeah. those reasons. I think it's going to become, it's going to become part of the thinking of the next facility how do we make it so that uh, we can be at home? And hopefully, this is you know knocking on wood, but something that I'm going to stress. Hopefully, this comes along with firms being more generous with the concept of tech stipends because they're now going to start really asking their associates to be working remotely and partners too, frankly, but everyone to be working remotely. And uh, they should be more generous on uh, setting folks up that way. Yeah. There's such a huge financial savings that can be accomplished. So it's yeah. no longer going to be, you know, our, our younger people are clamoring to work at home. It's going to be more, the you know, firm management is clamoring for you to work at home. We don't, we want to cut this real estate cost down, but we don't need. Victor, you want to, you want to be a Nostradamus here? Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think it'll be interesting to see what happens with, um, you know, I mean, kind of talked about it earlier with just, you know, the social media platforms, but, but also with Google, like, you know, like um, you know, whether the antitrust investigations against them stick, uh, whether or not there's going to be any kind of action on that. I mean, these kind of things take a long time anyway. And, you know, with the, with the incoming administration, there might be some um, disruption in, in, in any kind of investigations that they're doing. But, and I know, but I think, I think one of them is a state, is a state investigation. So that wouldn't be affected, but it, it'll be interesting to see what happens with those, with those things. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't anticipate anything like, you know, Break, breaking up of Google or, you know, breaking up of Facebook or anything like that. I mean, I, I, I think we're kind of past, past the days when like the Justice Department would, would, would weigh in with draconian uh, penalties like that. I mean, uh, just even, even with the Obama administration, like, you know, they, they might've been a little bit more aggressive with, 
with certain antitrust deals, but they weren't um, they weren't they weren't breaking up, you know, breaking up companies, or they weren't they were you know giving out huge fines and whatnot. So I would I would kind of anticipate that that would, that, that would kind of be the way things would be with with the incoming administration too. But I I, mean, I, I, I don't have any special insight into that. Well, I, whenever anybody asks me to make predictions, I always say that, uh, you know, if, if last January I had made any predictions, all of them would have been entirely 100% wrong. So I don't make predictions. I'll, I'll, I will predict that two major legal research companies will merge in 2021. And uh, we'll see if that comes true and if any of these other predictions come true. And we'll talk about them here if that happens. But uh, thanks, everybody. For, uh, for this. And uh, we will be back next week, same time, same place, and uh, see what brings, see what the news brings next week. So long, everybody. Have a good weekend. Bye, everybody.